We're going to continue this evening looking at the story of Nehemiah. As I said last evening, we're looking under the general heading of Nehemiah, Apostle of Restoration. Let us arise and build. I'm not going to read any particular section this evening. I meant to ask you last evening, but forgot, to read through the book of Nehemiah while you're here. It's like tent work instead of homework. (laughs) If you can just try and keep a chapter or two ahead of me, that would be very good. But there's so much to talk about from the book of Nehemiah, so much of it that is so relevant to today, quite amazingly relevant. And you'll find much more in the pages of Scripture than I have time to share from in these four evenings. So I do encourage you to read through Nehemiah. You can do it quite easily at a sitting, and then perhaps to go through it again more slowly, chapter by chapter, meditating on it. So we're going to just ask God to help us now and look into this next phase tonight, which I'm calling Battling and Building. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we've been rejoicing in already together this evening. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his glory and his majesty. Lord Jesus, we worship you that you were willing to come to this world, not just to live amongst sinners, but to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, Lord Jesus, God has raised you up, given you glory. Lord Jesus, you are glorious. We would join all those glorious names and, oh Lord, we would honour you. We thrill to be in a company of this size, giving you praise that seems more worthy than often we bring. Lord, you are worthy of myriads and myriads, O God, worshipping and adoring and praising We thank you for the faith you're placing in our hearts that we are going to see an outpouring of your Spirit of such dimension that we shall see the glory of the Lord in the earth. So our God, as we seek to pioneer a way forward, as we seek to restore the city of God, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit shall be not only upon me as I speak, but upon each one of us as we hear that we may be inwardly hearing from God. Oh Lord, meet us where we need to be met and change us through your living word, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last evening we looked at how a life suddenly changed. It started an ordinary day, a man going to his normal routine, only to hear some news which devastated him. We had a conference back in the spring for ministers and there was a young man from Switzerland there. He was a pastor. He was doing his church work in a fairly normal, traditional way. And then he said these words. He said, Then I heard about the restoration of the church. Then he said, Now I am ruined. (laughs) Now I'm ruined. 
I want to go on with what God's doing. I can't settle for anything less. I want to press through. And Nehemiah was absolutely changed on that, on that day. From that day on, his whole motivation was different. Everything he did was against a different backdrop. His burden was to see Zion full of glory, to see its walls stand, to see its gates majestic and strong and firm, to see the purposes of God coming through. We have time, of course, to unfold that all again, but just to remember that all this is a picture for us of the church of God. These Old Testament stories are true stories, but they are recorded for our sake upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There they are in a small, miniature experience, a few tens of thousands of people, but they have significance for millions throughout the world today as God fulfills, along the same principles, mighty truths for his church. And so we saw a man, first of all, overwhelmed by the situation. Secondly, deeply cast on God in mourning and weeping and fasting and praying. And thirdly, fortified. Blessed are they that mourn. They shall be fortified. And this man is fortified. He's lifted up from the dust as God places in his inner being an absolute assurance that he's going to see that city stand again. And from that assurance, he makes the long journey down to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the city. Now tonight we have to see the battle involved because rebuilding Zion is going to be no easy matter. It's going to be conflict all the way. And seeing the church of God beginning to put on her beauty, her splendor, her glory again, to be the sort of church God intends her to be is going to be a hard battle. Because we're not living in a neutral situation. There are enemies, powerful enemies, to this ever happening. And we read here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, When Sanballat and Tobiah heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. It was very displeasing to them. As you read on, you find that this displeasure of chapter 2, verse 10 has become fury and anger by the time you reach chapter 4 and verse 1. And let's be quite clear about this. We have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who is furious and angry about what we intend to do. He is furious about the church being restored. He was so happy to see it come into disarray. He was so happy to see it divided and lacking in faith and glory. And to see it beginning to pay, take on life. To see someone like Nehemiah, to see a multiple Nehemiah company saying, we are going to rebuild, brings trembling, fear, anger and fury into the enemy camp. Let's be perfectly clear about that. And that's why it's so tough. That's why we haven't found it easy to see the church restored. That's why many of us come here having wept, having been bruised, having come through emotional crises. Some of us having to change our home and our situation because of this vision. There is a battle raging. It's no easy matter to rebuild the house of God. And across our own nation, this story, I trust tonight, will come amazingly alive to us as we can see its parallels with what is happening 
in our hometowns and churches. So let's see some of the endeavours of the devil to stop this work going ahead. Let's see some of his cunning wiles. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we must be strong against the schemes of the devil. The cunning wiles. He puts on all kinds of different clothing. He comes this way. If he can't stop us that way, he comes another way. If he can't do anything there, he tries another. He has many, many wiles to stop this work happening. And it's not just that he's interested in little you. He wants to stop the house being built, the city being built. And it's inasmuch as you are part of that that he attacks you. And so he's going to come in many different ways to try and stop the city being rebuilt. Now, how does he come against Nehemiah? The very first thing we see is mockery. They begin to laugh and mock, and we find it in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. It came about that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him, and he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. That's their approach, despising it, mockery. Now, mockery sounds as though it's an expression of indifference. They're saying, oh, silly, haven't got a chance. But the Bible tells us what's behind that. They weren't indifferent at all. They weren't careless. They weren't saying, oh, it'll never happen. They may laugh about it. If a fox ran up, it'll fall down. Let's get on with something more important. This is silly. But the Bible says quite plainly, they were furious and angry. That mockery that seems to be such a careless weapon is actually something quite deliberately used by a furious, angry foe. And the devil uses mockery very powerfully to try and stop us in our tracks. Mockery is particularly powerful because of its cunning. And the devil is very cunning. He knows about us. He knows our flesh. He knows how we hate to be mocked. He knows that our, our, our flesh is proud and, and we, we hate ridicule. We like to be honoured and respected. That's, that's natural. That's part of man. He wants to be received. He doesn't like to be laughed at. It's one of the most painful things that can happen to us, to be mocked, to be laughed at. But many will find that they stop in the warfare because of mockery. Because people begin to laugh at them. Because people begin to just mock. And that mocking searches us out and gets to the very heart of our motivation. And, and God can even allow it to happen to root out and see what is there at the heart. Is there any pride left? Is there any arrogance there? Because mockery certainly searches us out if there's a, a secret pride that's in our hearts. And here it says, before his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, very hard to be mocked by those who seem so secure. 
It's hard at work, isn't it? To be mocked by the in-group who want to turn against our Christianity and make fun of it. Who want to just laugh us out of court. They don't want to listen. Oh, don't talk to us about that silly nonsense. As though it wasn't worth the time. That's very hard to bear. We can find that individually. Some of you here got unconverted husbands, and that's the method they use, isn't it? So they say to you, oh, don't be so silly about your religion. You're going to that silly church again, with all those silly people. We find that with children, with unconverted parents. They mock them. They say, oh, you can't really be taking this whole thing seriously. Don't you realize this modern scientific age has forgotten all these things? And mockery is very difficult to cope with. We find that our brothers, our sisters, our workmates, our fellow students at university, that is the, one of the most powerful weapons they use. It sounds casual, but it's so powerful. You fools. Now we've got to come to settle with this, that if we're going to triumph over this enemy, there's no way round it. The gospel is foolishness to the natural man. It's no good trying to pray, oh God, please let the most successful sportsman, guitar player or whatever in our university or in our country be safe so we can have some pride back. It doesn't work that way. We often think if only a prestigious person could be saved, then we can all stand up and say, well, he's a scientist and he's a Christian. Or he's a pop singer and everybody loves him and he's a Christian. <gasps> you see, we like to stand again. But no, God won't let us get away with that in the end. The gospel is folly. The natural man thinks it's nonsense that our destiny can be at all wrapped up with Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a cross in the Middle East somewhere 2,000 years ago. They cannot apply that to the modern 20th century. It is nonsense to them. And if we are going to overcome mockery, we've got to get used to the fact that that's how it is. Otherwise, we'll be forever trying to protect ourselves from its edge. That mockery, that trying to stop. Many of us as individuals have to face that day after day. We need to see, we'll come at the end to see how Nehemiah answered all these. I'm going to list some five or six ways in which the enemy came. And then at the end we'll look at how Nehemiah overcame them all. But we need to understand this, that mockery will be with us. Even in the days of Whitfield, even when thousands were coming, you can see some of the drawings that were done even when thousands were pulling in and people went to his meetings and blew trumpets so he wouldn't be heard, threw literally dead cats at him while he was preaching. They laughed him to scorn. He had a slight squint and they just mocked him and laughed at him even though they were seeing mighty power. We've got to just be prepared for that. Our beloved Lord Jesus on the cross heard mockery right to the end. But not just mockery of the individual, we're talking about the restoration of Zion. We're talking about putting up that city again. They said, even if you put, even if a fox ran up there, the whole thing would fall over. You can imagine them standing there laughing at the whole thing. And that's been something that's quite difficult for us to get through on in terms of the restoration of the church. There are those who say, oh, look at this silly lot. 
They hadn't even got a proper clergy. There's that John, he used to be a salesman, calls himself pastor now. And they meet in that funny hall, haven't even got a building. And the way they carry on. He's never been properly trained, how can he teach them? Haven't got a proper Sunday school. The whole thing's pathetic. That's how what God is doing today is often attacked. There's no scholarship amongst them. Where are the theologians? What serious theologian is allied with them? Where's their Bible college? That's the mockery. Laughing at it. Saying, oh, there's nothing there. It'll all be a passing thing. Don't worry, it'll blow through and we'll return to the status quo. It'll all be over in a few years. Mockery is one of the methods that's been used. The next method that we see used is this, because it didn't stop Nehemiah, and we'll see how he overcame later on. The second method that they used, as they saw the whole thing gathering momentum, as they saw that just laughing at it wasn't stopping it, as they laughed and said, nothing will uh, prosper, it'll all fall down, then it says the walls got up to half their height. And they had a mind to work. The whole thing began to grow and build and build. And they said, hey, wait a minute, laughing at them doesn't seem to be stopping them. The whole thing's growing. What's the next step? Well, we find in chapter 6 that the question of compromise is suggested. Let us, let's meet together. Let's have a talk about this. Hey, wait a minute, you, you, you're moving a bit of a pace here. This looks as though it's going to stand after all. We need to really have a round table conference. Let's come and have a talk about this. And we read in the context that the plan was actually to destroy it. But it came in the guise of having a talk about things. Compromise. Now let's not take it all too seriously. Again, this can happen to us as, as individuals. I remember when I was a young Christian in my teenage years, longing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I remember spending a whole evening just in my, my bedroom praying and praying and praying about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't understand it. I was longing to find the answer. I remember the end of the evening, my door opened and my father most lovingly said to me, now come on, son, you mustn't take this religion too seriously. Have you heard that sort of thing? Now come on, don't take it too seriously. Just, it's all right in proportion. We don't mind you going to church on Sunday, but look, you've given the whole week now, that's week of your holiday. Now that church, look, it's not like other churches. They get very, very noisy down there. <laughs> Why do you take it all so seriously? Let's just settle down. That's the cry of compromise. Let's just not be taking it so seriously. Or after hearing last night's word, perhaps someone's already said to you, hey, wait a minute, if you follow that through, what about that promotion you've been offered? You can't refuse that promotion just because you heard you've got to put the church first. You've been waiting for that for years. I know it would mean moving to there, but, but we've been waiting for this kind of breakthrough. Think what it will mean for the children. Think what it will mean for the income. Look, we've been planning for this. We went through the hard years and now you're saying you're going to put the church first and not take it. You can't do that. Now, come on. 
That's the kind of attempt the devil makes. If he can't laugh us out of court, he says, now at least water it down. For goodness sake, don't take it so seriously. And it's very powerful. It comes to us. It says, you can't give all that up. You imagine if you get that promotion, if you hold that job, think of the influence you could have. And in your spare time, you could still do a lot. Now be reasonable. You've got to be reasonable, haven't you? That's a powerful weapon in the enemy's hand. Ever so powerful. Be reasonable. God wants you to be reasonable. He doesn't want you to be fanatical. And that comes pressing in on our minds. Am I being fanatical? Am I being silly? Am I throwing everything away? And there's a battle that rages because the devil's so powerful. He's trying to stop. He's trying to destroy the onward march of your life. Or in terms of this whole work of God that we're talking about again, the restoration of the church. We find that people say, well, you mustn't go on about speaking in tongues and all this noisy worship. Why don't you just have that midweek and we can have it as we've always had it in the past on Sundays? Why don't you have it that way? Show love. Keep others happy. Then this one, this one. Don't you know the Holy Spirit never causes division? Now you must just have that little thing in the middle of the week, in your house if you want to do it, but let's keep Sunday nice, because lots of the other folk don't like it. And the Holy Spirit never brings division, the Holy Spirit's always loving. So let's just water it all down so that we're all happy. That's very powerful. That's very powerful when the young preacher has got his salary and his house and his wife and children to think of and his security and he's saying, oh God, do I go through? And they're saying, if you go through, you go out. And he thinks, where will we live? What will we do? I could water it down, I suppose. I suppose we could, we could just have a few scripture songs and perhaps I could say, them, don't raise your hands on a Sunday morning. Perhaps we'll get the evening meeting a bit livelier and we'll somehow we'll, we'll hit a level where everybody's happy. Let's talk it through. That's, that's the, the method they used. They tried to laugh. They said, oh, nothing will come of this. Then it started to take ground. They said, right. Let's, let's talk it out. Let's compromise this thing. And what was, the, what was behind this whole idea of compromise? It, it was this, that they might kill it. That's the, there's no point in compromise. I have a dear friend who said to me quite recently as he left the church, he said, I tried leading from the middle. You can't do it, he said. He was trying to keep this wing happy and that wing happy. And in the end, it overwhelmed him. He said, I found to my cost, you can't lead from the middle. You've got to have that Nehemiah vision that says, God, if you tell me this is the way I go, this is the way I go. There is no compromise. No compromise. It's a powerful thing. It can be so subtle, especially in this disguise of just being loving and so on. And then a third weapon that's used, and a very powerful one, is this. It says in Nehemiah chapter 6, 
and verse 6, as they were continuing in the work, and this whole chapter is full of all different enemy exploits, it is, uh, there was an open letter, interesting this, verse 5, Sanballat sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, didn't seal it. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're building the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. This is incredible. This could be written in the 1980s. Here's the next attack. First, mockery. Second, compromise. Third, flagrant lies. Flagrant lies. And all concealed. It is reported. And we've got some person who says it's true. It's reported. And what's, it, what's reported? You're starting a rebellion. It's all a big takeover. And you are going to be the king. We know your game. You're all going to get into a situation and you're going to be the Pope. <laughs> it could have been written today, couldn't it? And it's all completely made up. It's reported. It's amazing anonymous statements that go on. Now this is all about today. And then having invented utter nonsense, people say, and of course, there's no smoke without fire, you know. <laughs> Incredible statement, that. You watch television, Top of the Pops, if you can bear it, and uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll see, while the noise is going on, and the music, there's smoke everywhere sometimes. There's no fire. It's easy to make smoke. And that's happening all about. I was asked recently by a, a group of ministers nearby to uh, sit with them for a couple of hours to explain. Uh, the title they gave me was this, The Theology of Clarendon. Now, <laughs> Clarendon happens to be the name of the building where we worship. And actually, it's ancient deed, which is about 100 years old, um, has something in it about... Uh, a coffee tavern for the poor. So I don't know what the theology of Clarendon is, really. <laughs> but um, they had this concept that we were inventing a whole new theology. So I sat and spoke for about a quarter of an hour, and then I said, now, you've obviously got some questions you want to ask. So we went through the rest of the time just with questions, and in the end, they said, now, what about the authority? I said, what do you mean? Then they said, well... We have heard that if anybody in your church wants to do, and I think it was the furniture one, I can't remember now. <laughs> they have to get permission. And then they, they sat around the circle, all these ministers, and they said, um, you told us this, didn't you, to one of them. He said, oh, no, I didn't say it. <laughs> and then... That went all round the circle. They said, was it you? No, no. no. And then I just said, well, it isn't true. You know, it's ridiculous. And then they said, ah, well, we know this one is true, don't we? Because, um, and they named this other fellow, another chap. He said, no, you did tell us. We know this is true. That there was a couple who wanted to join your church and the, um, 
the wife was acceptable, but the husband wasn't, so you required them to be divorced before she could join. <laughs> I sat there in utter amazement. And they said to this fellow, now we know this is true, because you said it, didn't you? I never said it, they said. <laughs> this is true. This is local ministers. And that went right around the circle. I said, and they all went, was it you? No, I thought you. No, he's, no. No one had ever said it. No one had said it. But they all knew it was true. And this, to me, was the hardest thing of all. That when I said to them, brethren, if you can hear me, neither of these things are true. None of you knows who first said it. But we're living with this sort of thing all the time these days. The tragic thing was this. I don't believe anybody changed their mind when I left. I don't think anybody changed their stance or attitude. It's here in the Word. It's clear as anything. The next weapon they used was telling lies, you are going to set up an authority structure. You're going to be king. And it says, you've got prophets lined up to say, you're the king. Amazing. Could have been written in 1983. It's one of the weapons the enemy is using. Listen, what was the motivation of Nehemiah? All that they could actually see was this, walls going up. That's all that was actually happening. That is the reality. Walls were going up. Their suspicion was all about, but why are the walls going up? What's the motivation behind this? The Bible tells us what the motivation was. It was this. There was a man with a broken heart about the church. That was the motivation. He'd seen the state of the church. He said, oh, God, it's got to be built. That was his motivation. They said, you want to be king. They cut right across the reality. And they said, all these people working, why are they working? There must be coercion. It must be because they have to do it. You've got them all working. Look, they're all down that wall, all down that wall. Everyone's working in front of his house. How is it you make them do that? I'll tell you how you make them do that. It says in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6, the people had a mind to work. That's how it happened. The Holy Spirit was working. How do we run an enormous great thing like this? How do we get, what is it, 5,400 registered on here? Hundreds of children, teenagers, food, the whole thing. How do we do it? We say, right, if you join this church, you have... No, no, we find people say, can I help? We say, well, we need people to do this. We need people to clean out the loose. And we say, right, we'll do that. We'll do that. There's a willingness. They say, let's do it together. Let's work. Hallelujah. I cannot understand people who say, oh, they're all under terribly heavy pressure down there. You come to the meetings, you can't keep them down. They're all leaping and praising, all under terrible pressure of authority, you know. They're all terrified of their leaders. That's why they get caricatures of them, hold them up, say, look at Henry with the banana. <laughs> it's all so heavy, the pressure. <gasps> Can't you feel it? It's lies. Utter lies. And you can make smoke anytime. It's a device of the devil. Utter lie. The third weapon they used was this, fear. 
chapter 6, verse 10. I entered the house of Shemaiah. He said to me, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you at night. The next weapon is fear. Let's frighten them. Let's frighten this Nehemiah. You, Nehemiah, are in danger. You better withdraw to safety. And it's pretty subtle too. It's apparently a friend. He's not saying, run away, run away. No, no, it's much more subtle than that. He says, you better come into the temple. Run into the house of God and find safety. Your life is in danger, Nehemiah. Fear is a powerful, powerful weapon. Men suddenly gripped with fear. What will happen if we keep on this course? What's going to happen to me? Especially when a friend comes along and says, well, look, brother, you know, Jesus went through that. He was heading for the cross and a friend said to him, not the cross, Lord. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. It was Peter, his dear friend. He said, you can't go that way. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. And people will say to us, look, if you go this way, it's going to cost you your home. It'll cost you your job. You'll be out. You'll lose job, home, everything. Do you know, we've got a saviour who said this. That's the way we find life. It's when you lose it, you find it. It's no good us saying that in principle if when the crunch comes we say, well, we don't go any further because we could lose everything. We have a saviour who says, lose everything and you'll discover. I've just heard of a lovely church down in Cape Town in South Africa where they were beginning to see a lovely breakthrough of God. And there they built a lovely building and within a certain denominational structure which had some limitations, they, they put their money into it, they did the building up beautifully, and then they said to the denomination, God bless you, you keep it, we're going to move out to the hall down the road. And they, they did it most graciously and lovingly. The brother here, earlier in the week, just flown back to South Africa today, was telling me about some of the detail. He said they did it so graciously, they said, no, that's yours, you, God bless you in it, and they've moved out to a hall where they can obey the Holy Spirit. And they have grown so rapidly and so gloriously because God is with those who will lose their lives. God is there. God will support those who go out on a line for him. It's his kingdom. It's his work. He's going to make it stand. We must either believe that or not. And so we find here that willingness to, to go right through. Yes, we lose our lives. And in so doing, we find them. Fuckery. Second, compromise. Third, malicious lies. Fourth, frighten them. Fifth, and perhaps the ugliest of all, really. We read in chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him 
Verse 19, moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Disloyalty. Terrible, terrible weapon. Many who were apparently with Nehemiah were actually bound by oath to Tobiah, his enemy. It's one of the hardest of all to bear. It's one of the agonies that the child of God experiences when someone who is apparently with you is disloyal. The other enemies are all external. Somehow you can cope with external enemies. And I find here, even in the report, it's, it's just tucked in at the end. It's after he said the walls uh, were, were built. The work had been accomplished, it says in verse 16. It's done. And then you hear this painful testimony of Nehemiah. He doesn't say, so it was a great victory at this point. He will go on to say that later. But he says the, build, the walls were built. And then he just says, really a heart cry. Those, some of them that were with me weren't with me, really. They had a greater loyalty elsewhere. Can I ask you, are you loyal to where you are? Have you got your foot in two camps? Do you go to one group, but really you've got more allegiance to another? You apparently support one church and its leadership, but really you're, you're somewhere else in heart. Are you loyal to the one who's trying to work things through? It's desperate for a man to feel that those who are with him are not with him at all. And key people, perhaps, key people, some of the nobles, some of those who are apparently in leadership, perhaps men who are deacons and leaders in a church, and say, oh yes, we're with you, but they're not really with you. And they meet with other people sometimes and say, we don't like the way this man's going. We're staying there, we're trying to hold it a bit. And on Sunday, hello brother, God be with you as you preach this week. And then midweek, you're around the corner saying to him, he said some more about the Holy Spirit this week. And that disloyalty, I'm sticking in there, I'm going to see if I can hold it back. Just reporting, having a split heart. Or perhaps you're in a place that doesn't want to go this way and you're more committed to some who do want restoration outside but you're staying in there and you're, you're just being there. You have no heart for it. You've no faith for it. In fact, you have more fellowship with this little midweek charismatic group that you go to. But you go along on a Sunday but your real loyalty is outside. Brethren, we cannot have a foot in each camp. We undermine people when we're like that. We must be true to our convictions. I'm sure we're familiar with that passage in Psalm 55, which I'm sure prophetically speaks of Jesus' experience, though of course it's there in terms of David. Psalm 55, verse 12, For it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me that's exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it's you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God, in the throng. And David's saying, how could you do it? 
I thought you were for me. I thought you were with me. And you weren't at all. He said, if it was an enemy, I could cope with that. But you, we had sweet fellowship and you weren't with me. Are you like that? God hates disloyalty because in his character is covenant love. We must be loyal people. If you haven't got faith in the situation where you are, get to a situation where you have got faith and give yourself to it. Be wholehearted. Don't be a disloyal one all the time eroding what could happen there. Be consistent. Be real. Make up your mind. Get behind someone you can wholeheartedly support and work. The last enemy is something that no one else does, but it's an enemy that hits us as people of God from time to time. It's the enemy of rubbish. It says there was much rubbish. There was much rubbish. Nehemiah, on that first occasion when he came back to Jerusalem, he didn't speak to anybody else. He went and looked at the whole situation. And at night, he went around the walls and he looked at them. He saw how hopeless the situation was. And Jesus says quite plainly to us in the New Testament, any man who's going to build, he's got to count how many bricks he's got first. And sometimes we're almost overwhelmed when we look at the amount of rubbish there is. And how can we build with so much rubbish? And that inner despair. But even into that we find Nehemiah finds his answers. There are those inner crumbling feelings. The awareness of your own, your own rubbish that you're so vulnerable yourself. And so we see these, these enemies that come against us in the building of the house. And I want us to come to see how the man of God overcame them. How did the man of God overcome these various attempts to stop the house being built or the city walls being built? The first one of mockery in chapter 4, a very, very simple answer. It says they laughed at him. They said, oh, the fool. If a fox ran up, it would fall over. Oh, they can't build on all this rubbish. How can they possibly do it? Do you know what Nehemiah's answer is? It's in verse 6. So we built the wall. That's the answer. It's very simple. Build the wall. When people mock us, it is for us to be true to our convictions, whether it's our individual experience, whether it's some of you ladies who are mocked by your unconverted husbands. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to try and vindicate yourself. You just build up the wall of God in your life. You teenagers, you young people who've been saved while you've been away at university, you've come home to your sophisticated parents, they say, we didn't send you to university to become a religious fanatic. Don't argue. You just build the wall. Just let your life shine. Just let them observe that the wall is being built. Your character's coming through. You're respectful now. You're thoughtful. You're righteous. You're clean. You're gracious. You don't bother to argue the case. You don't bother to become offended. 
You're not trying to vindicate yourself. You just say, you hear, Lord. That's what Nehemiah said. Hear, O Lord. You listen to it. I haven't got time to listen to it. I'm building the wall. He doesn't get taken up with mockery. He's not going to be affected by it. He's a man who's broken and now fortified and they can mock as much as he like. Uh, he just builds the wall. So we built the wall. I've underlined that in my Bible. So we built the wall. Let them laugh, we'll build it. In the end, beloved, it's the fact that it stands that's the proof that God's in it. And that's true for this whole work of restoration. We don't have to vindicate. By all means, let's graciously answer when we're asked questions. But in the end, let's build it. Let's just keep building. On course. Keep going. Keep working. Build. Build. It'll speak for itself. Hallelujah. We keep building. Then the second thing. Compromise. Let's talk. Let's get round the table. His answer to that is very clear. He says in verse 3 of chapter 6, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? There's so much discussion today. So many groups and committees want to have another meeting of evangelical leaders to discuss the, uh, all that's happening in this sphere and the implications of this. Let's have another meeting of leaders. Let's come and discuss it. And we've got to be very selective. Or else we'll be forever sitting on committees discussing what might happen next. And Nehemiah says, look, I'm doing a great work. I can't, can't come down to that. I can't be forever debating the implications of this thing. I've got to obey God. I'm doing a great work. Very taken up with his main thrust and purpose. He wasn't going to be hoodwinked into just talking about it. He's going to continue working, working. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Or oh, doesn't that remind you of another one? hung upon a cross. They said, oh, if you're some great one, why don't you come down? And he could have answered in the same way. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Beloved, we've got to identify with that cross. It's very flattering to sit on a committee and discuss the implications of restoration for the church today. Very flattering to be invited it appeals to the flesh to be asked, God help us to know when to go and when to say, I'm sorry, I'm about a great work. I cannot come down. I can't come and discuss this. I can't come and consider whether if we did it this way it would be more palatable to the evangelical church at large. We must build on. I'm about a great work. I cannot come down. Is that in your soul? Oh, I do pray it is. I hope we've seen something of the greatness of the work we're doing. And then we find this challenge of the lies. It doesn't seem to bother him. It's one verse. Chapter 6, verse 6, they bring the challenge. Enlarging it in verse 7. 
Verse 8 just gives the answer. Then I sent a message to him saying, such things that you are saying have not been done. You are inventing them in your own mind. <laughs> That's the end of it. We can't be taken up, can we, with chasing these mysterious things. Oh, we've heard that if you do this and he submits to him and it all goes back there. Oh, yes. We can't unravel all that. You're making it all up. It's an invention of your mind. Sorry, we're getting on. He doesn't seem to get very taken up with it, so we won't. We'll press on. <laughs> the next one is fear. Chapter 6, verse 11. His answer, Should a man like me flee? Could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I'll not go in. What a mighty answer. Arrogant man, wasn't he? No, he wasn't arrogant. He had a sense of destiny, which we'll come on to in a moment. Should such a man as I flee, had no intention of running away, he wasn't going to be diverted. He completely withstood the fear. I will not run away, even run into the temple. I'll not do it. And then this fifth line of attack I mentioned, which was disloyalty. And there's no answer to disloyalty. He, can't, he doesn't give an answer, really. His heart's broken. Those of you who've been through that experience of finding people who've proved disloyal, people you thought you could count on, and you can't count on them, you know the agony. You know the experience. There's no answer. You've just got to learn to bear that. You've got to make sure there's no bitterness, as we heard prophetically earlier in the meeting. It's very, very important. If someone lets you down and is disloyal to you, you don't let a root of bitterness grow up and spoil not only you, but everyone who gets near to you. God, deliver us from that. It hurts, but you mustn't let a root of bitterness spoil you. That's a devastating evil. No, we find... There's no answer, he just says, they did it. The thing I do notice is that he learns the lesson in the very next chapter. It says in verse 2, when he's beginning, well, verse 1 of the chapter 7, that follows straight on from this disloyalty, it came about when the wall was rebuilt that I set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. This is what we learn when we get wounded by those who are disloyal. We make sure that we build on loyal people. That's what Nehemiah did. The very next thing we read, we don't read of a reaction, we just read this. The next man he built on was a loyal man who feared God. That's what we're to look for. That's what we're to see developing in our character. These are the ones whom God will entrust responsibility to and that leaders who've got the freedom to do that will give responsibility to. Those who are loyal and who fear God. Those are the keys. They may not be as significant as some of these nobles were who were disloyal. They may be very insignificant. They may not be very big public figures. They may not have platform ability, but they're loyal and they fear God. 
that way we'll build the city. That way the walls will go up. Disloyalty. You know what was behind all this terrific steadfastness that saw this man through? Because what's coming through is a man who will not be diverted. He says, I'm about a great work. Should such a man as I come down, I'm going on, I'm going on. He's consumed. Now why is it? Well, I want to just name quickly five things that held him together. First, his call, should such a man as I flee. That wasn't because he was arrogant. That wasn't because he was self-important. You don't feel that at any time coming through this book. What gripped the man was the sense that he had been laid hold of by God. In his time of deep sorrow about the situation in Jerusalem, God met with him. He fortified him by the Holy Spirit. That is obvious. God met with him in such a way that he knew he had been chosen because he said to the man, let me go, send me, I'm going to rebuild it. He'd already had his encounter with God, though the detail of it is not written up. That must be true. He was so fortified by that sense of call. I have noticed in our meetings that as we sing together that mighty passage from Ephesians and chapter 1, and I've noticed it back at home where we've been singing this song for a few months, that God gives us sometimes such a spirit of revelation. He has chosen us before the world was formed to be holy and blameless before him. He has predestined us. Oh, beloved, that's how we become strong. When we know that God has reached down through eternal ages and with his great wisdom and knowledge, he's chosen us. We're weak and feeble, but he has chosen us. And he says, I'm going to use you. That's how we can say, I'm not going to flee. Should such a man as I flee, God chose me. I do hope that truth thrills your heart. We read in Philippians chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul said this was his one aim. It's the most wonderful that in the Bible. I'll just read to you a famous verse. You'll know it very well. I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul says, the eternal God laid hold of me. I was a rebel. I was the opponent of the gospel. And Christ laid hold of me. If you're a Christian, that's true of you. It may not have been very dramatic. It may not have been a light shining. But if you're a Christian, that is true of you. Christ laid hold of you. doesn't matter you say, well, I came from a Christian home. There's plenty of people that came from a Christian home who have not followed on to know the Lord. Every one of us who knows the Lord, the truth is that Christ laid hold of you. Hallelujah. And there's a that which is tied up with your life and mine. That for which he laid hold of you. And Paul says, I'm pressing after this. This, he says, is my consuming passion. I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. That is the consuming passion of my life, Paul says. I've got dignity, Paul says. I've got destiny. I'm not just being tossed about, and nor are you and I in this world of cynicism 
and indifference. And people say, well, what can you do about it anyway? We just have a vote. Who can really change things? No one can change things. It's just all going on. People feel hopeless, even in a democratic system. What can we do? When you know God's laid hold of you, God's laid hold of you with a purpose and a destiny, you say, oh God, I'm going to lay hold of that for which you laid hold of me. That's what was in Nehemiah's heart, I'm sure. He was aware he was a called person. And every believer is a called person. And that should be our passion, that we may lay hold of it. Lord God, that we may lay hold of it. And I want us to feel that corporately, beloved. Because when Nehemiah felt that, he found a whole company of people felt like it. He had that passion. He said, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. When he gets there, there's a whole army of people saying, come on then, let's do it. Because they had a corporate sense of destiny. I believe with all my heart, and I speak for these men on the platform, we have a corporate sense of destiny. We are gripped with the awareness that the Downs Bible Week isn't just a convention. It's not just a little time in the Word, a little bit of escapism from the awful world out there. We are gripped with a sense of destiny. God's got a great work He's going to do. And somehow He chose us to be in it. And you. And the church you belong to, if you're in this sort of a situation. If you're rebuilding Zion. It's a glorious destiny. The church has been in the doldrums for decades. He's got to build it again and we're part of it. We're affecting thousands. Somehow he brought us in in his mercy. You and me. Hallelujah. How can we be more taken up with lesser things? The king of glory is going to make his church shine again. And we're part of it. We're helping prepare the way. We're being given songs to sing. God's bursting them upon us. New songs, glory. We're finding new abilities, skills. Music, things that weren't here, we're all part of it. Like an orchestra, incomplete without any member missing. Oh, I do pray a sense of destiny will grip us together. As we come here year by year, as God shows us, it goes bigger and bigger because God's going to do something magnificent. Not that we're anything, Nehemiah was nothing, but by virtue of his call and awareness of call, he said, should such a man as I flee, I'm in the will of God. You in the will of God like that? Does it grip you and thrill you? That's how he overcame it all. That sense of utter call. He couldn't escape the call of God in his life. And with it, there was total commitment. Total commitment. The call, the commitment. Chapter 4, verse 23, None of us removed our clothes. Sounds like the Bible week. (laughs) We took our children home today. We practically had to peel some of the clothes off. When we went, even to go and get water, we took our weapon with us. That's not so much like the Bible week, I hope. (laughs) Fighting people off in the queue. There was that total commitment. The sword and the trial. We're going to build this. We're going to get this house up. There's enemies that don't want us to, so we've got a sword and a trial. We're building and we're fighting. We're building, we're fighting. Some people, they built during the day and they were on guard duty all night. 
You read these passages. Total commitment to this. Absolute commitment because they were about such a great work. Are you committed? Or do you just think, well, it's a nice place to come? This is no holiday, is it? We know that, beloved. We know that. I know that. I know it costs money to come here. I know we have only three, four, whatever it is, weeks holiday. Yeah, we, 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 we're giving off that week. We're paying. We're coming with our children. Some of you house group leaders, you're working all the year round. And now it's holiday. Now it's the Bible week. That's no holiday. That's right. And I rejoice because I know what that means in your spirit. I know why you're here. You say, we've got to be there. We've got to be there. It's tough all the year. Now we're going to make the holiday tough too. <laughs> but it's glorious too, isn't it? It's tough, but oh, who'd miss it? But there's a cost and there's a commitment. And God sees it from heaven, beloved. God sees it. A commitment. Then thirdly, total confidence. Everyone's a C here. Confidence. Chapter 4, verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and terrible and fight. What a mighty statement that is. I would like a song on that one, please, Dave. <laughs> Remember the Lord, great and terrible and fight. We need a revelation of God and then we fight. Be strong in the Lord because you must be. If you're not strong in the Lord, the devil will get his fiery darts at you. Be strong because you must be and be strong because you can be. Remember the Lord mighty and fight. The Lord terrible and great and fight. The God of heaven will give us success. Absolute confidence in God. And then fourthly, comradeship. Comradeship. They stationed men, he says. In chapter 4, in verse 13, he says, they'll come up this way or they'll come up that way. Then, verse 13, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places. I stationed the peoples, in, the people in families with their swords and their spears and their bows. Comradeship in it. They were in it together. They were feeling the whole thing together. And then sometimes they were separated out on the wall because it was a long wall around the city. And Nehemiah says to them, sound the trumpet. And if you hear the trumpet call, then rally to one another. We need that. We don't go through pressures alone anymore, I hope. I do hope that we're not just going on alone with Jesus, just you locked in with the Lord, though I know that is a very, very important part of your spiritual life. But we need to know what it is to blow the trumpet and people come rushing in. People come to help. People come to take the load. I remember once when my wife was expecting one of our children and suddenly the waters burst when she was only about four or five months on and she just picked up the phone and laid down 
on the bed. And the girls from the church rushed in, took off the other children, looked after everything. And the doctor said, you should have lost the child. It's only because you laid down so quickly that the child was okay. She just got the trumpet and blew it. And people rushed. Are you in a church like that? Or does anybody know that you go? God wants churches where it's like that. You just know. You pick up that phone. There's a house group leader. There's 15 people. They're there. They rush in. They care. The church may be getting bigger and bigger, but there's a company who know you. They know you. They even notice you if you look a bit down this week. That's what we're after. But if we're in distress, we don't go through it alone. And we've need, we need more and more to be open, beloved. Not proud, but open, saying, I'm in trouble now. Not that we wait till we're through and just go through. How are things? Oh, fine, thank you. No, God wants us to be more honest than that. When you're under pressure, blow the trumpet. Say, help me, brothers. Help me. I remember one brothers meeting many years ago and a policeman friend of mine came to the meeting and it was a, usually a tremendous time of worship in these meetings and he came in and uh, instead of saying hallelujah, praise the Lord which he might often have said he said, I'm shattered. I thought, great way to start a meeting, brother. But as he began to talk about what he'd been through that day and I believe it was one of those days where he'd had to do some awful and really painful work in the police duties, really heartbreaking work. As he just talked about it and we fellowshiped it through, God just came into the room. There was a lovely sharing of the load. And I still remember it as one of the most memorable times of the breakthrough of the Spirit because the brother was effectively blowing the trumpet. He wasn't saying, well, praise God, all's well. No, he was hurting inside. And he shared it so that we were in reality when we broke through. Blow the trumpet. Sometimes pressure comes on your part of the wall. If you don't shout, we won't necessarily know. Comradeship. It must happen. And we've, not, we've got a long, long way to go on that yet. And then lastly, constant prayer. Constant prayer. You look at this book. I could quote from so many verses where he's saying, hear me, O God. And he's, he's there with us. Right from the beginning, really, after this long intercessory prayer, then we find in chapter 2, where he first met with the king, and the king says, what do you request? And you get that lovely thing. So I said to the Lord, and I said to the king. That's how Nehemiah lives all the time. He hasn't got time to take his clothes off, but he's saying, God, hear him. Someone comes against him. Lord, you hear that? Lord. All the time, he's praying. Hear, O our God. Chapter 4, verse 9. We pray to our God. Chapter 6, verse 9. Now, now, O God, strengthen my hands. He's all the time talking to God. All the time. Constant, constant prayer. Just like Jesus. Constant prayer. All the time, getting away to be with Father. We'll never build without that. We'll never see what God has for us without that. A constant crying to God. That's how he overcame. 
That's how Jesus overcame. That's how he won the victory. And so he can say at the end, in the end of, verse, of chapter 6, verse 16, so the work was accomplished. How? With the help of our God. We were continually calling upon him. There had to be that fortitude, there had to be that strength, there had to be that determination not to be knocked off course by the opposing forces. But in his heart, he was saying, through our God, we shall do valiantly. Remember the Lord, great and terrible, and fight. Have some of you been mocked lately? You've got people at home think you're crazy coming to a week like this. When you go back, you're going to have to say what it was like, and they say, ah, silly. People like that at home, your little meeting you're in now, not a proper church even, hasn't got a proper pastor even. People mocking you. Through our God we should do valiantly. People saying to you, you dare not take it so seriously. Goodness sake, water it down. Through our God we should do valiantly. It's going to cost you your career. It's going to cost you those heights you'd set your sights on. Through our God we should do valiantly. <coughs> Remember the Lord is great and terrible. Fight it off. Fight off the temptation to compromise. The lies. All the lies against you. All the things you're supposed to be. And the awful pictures and this awful man. Have you heard about him? Forget it. Through our God we should do valiantly. Fear? The dangers involved. No, through our God. We should do valiantly. Disloyalty, beloved, it hurts. It breaks your heart. Through our God, we should do valiantly. Isn't that right? We build. We keep building. We keep building until it says, through the help of our God, it stood. That's what we're going towards. His triumph is inevitable. Should such men as we flee? I trust not. Let's pray.